Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America located in Washington, D.C. provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, a post-holiday Peter King Podcast. We're recording this on Tuesday, December 26th. I'm in California. Miles Simmons, my partner, is in Cleveland. Uh, I'm with family. He's with family. And we have broken away as a major sacrifice, a major sacrifice to you, our Uh, podcast listeners, experiencers, watchers, uh, just because we love you so much. And so we are going to, we've got a good guest this week. We got TJ Watt of the Pittsburgh Steelers. He'll be coming up a little bit later in the podcast uh, to talk about his friend and teammate, Cam Hayward, and also how difficult it is to play defense these days in the offense-loving NFL. So our topics for this week, segment one, we are going to go all in on the Ravens being the new Super Bowl favorites, and probably not by just a little bit, after their demolition of the 49ers on Monday night in Santa Clara. We're going to talk about how Lamar Jackson has, with two weeks to go, has muscled his way and perhaps even hijacked the Most Valuable Player Derby. And then later in the pod, we're going to talk about our team of the week, the Las Vegas Raiders. We're going to talk about how the biggest problem in Kansas City really is not Kadarius Toney. The Eagles being a hugely shaky potential top seed. Now, they probably won't win the top seed, but wherever they are, man, they got a lot of things to worry about this week. Also, what makes the Lions so dangerous with that offensive depth? And the first round wild card match that I am rooting for, and I think America has to be rooting for it. It'd be so delicious. We'll talk about that. There's actually going to be two wild card matchups that I think are totally fascinating. Um, what has happened to the Jacksonville Jaguars? Why is Green Bay, Minnesota on Sunday night football? And why is Miami at Baltimore at 1 o'clock in the afternoon? Inquiring minds want to know. I am going to tell you. And a suddenly crowded offensive rookie of the year race, probably with Puka Nakua and C.J. Stroud at the beginning, but, man, this Jameer Gibbs is muscling his way into 
at least some distant consideration. So, Miles Simmons, that's what we got on the agenda. And let's start by, uh, I'll give you just a couple of thoughts on what it was like. I just spent my first weekend in 40 years during the NFL season not working. And I knew it was a bit unusual when Monday night I missed a good chunk of the first half because I am at my daughter's house in Berkeley, California, and Elf was on. And so (laughs) there was no football until Elf. They only have one TV. No football till Elf was off. So we kind of got Elf out of the way, and then kids went to bed. And by the time I turned on the game, it was over. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, but it it was actually very, very refreshing. I enjoyed it. Uh, and it was really the right decision for me to make. Instead of writing my normal column this week, I wrote kind of a, a feature story on Cam Hayward on, on NBC on Saturday in the pregame show for Bengals Steelers. I did a, a TV feature on Cam Hayward, and so I just wrote a lot of what I didn't use in the in the feature and some of what I did, and... Um, I just wanted to pay tribute. We're so caught up at this time of year in the playoff race. Who's the hero? Who's the goat? Who's good? Who's bad? uh, Who's getting fired? All that stuff. But I just, I've been so impressed over the years getting to know Cam Hayward. And I just wanted to tell people his story. He's just a good, good human being. Uh, Later on in the pod, I'll talk to TJ Watt a bit about him. But uh, overall, a very refreshing, fun, cool few days in California with the family. Miles Simmons, let's hear your Christmas pleasantries. Well, it, it's nice that now doing this job, you know, I get to spend Christmas with my family because, you know, for the first, I don't know, however many years I, I was doing this, you know, covering the NFL as a beat writer, you're always in whatever place the team that you're covering happens to be. So, I mean, a few years ago, uh, and I guess it was 2017, I'm covering the Rams, and they won their first uh, division title in however many years, in 17, and we're in Tennessee on Christmas, right? So, like, that's very different now that, you know, you can spend it with family and spend time with family. So I'm thrilled that I get to do that and, you know, watching – television and watching all the games on Christmas is is great because it now has become an NFL holiday instead of an NBA holiday at least when games are going to seems like fall on Thursday Friday Saturday Sunday or Monday which you know I love basketball but I love basketball in the spring and then you know toward the summer like let's give me more football right now so having three games on at Christmas I loved it while eating Christmas dinner watching the games at the same time that was that was fun for me (laughs) You know what? Hey, Miles, by the way, I used to note my column the other day, last week, and I said, I wonder, with Celtics-Lakers on head-to-head with Giants-Eagles, and even though Giants-Eagles became a game in the second half, yeah. that that game stunk, you know? And it was just, <laughs> it was just, you know, it just wasn't a good game, really. And and so 
And I wonder if Celtics at Lakers put a dent at all into Giants-Eagles. What's your gut feeling? I, I think the Giants-Eagles probably still outdrew it by a lot because the NFL is king. And, you know, and, and obviously we're on an NFL podcast, so it's kind of easy for me to say, but, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the Lakers haven't been playing well since they won the in-season tournament. And, you know, to my understanding, because I didn't watch that game, they didn't necessarily play very well yesterday either. So, I don't know. We'll see what happens with them. By the way, how how about (laughs) this? You know, at this time of year, it's so strange in the NBA. (laughs) I sometimes don't, I mean, I don't pay that much attention in the NBA, but I noticed this weekend that, you know, the Celtics had the L.A. L.A. back to back with Christmas Eve off, and they kind of creamed the Clippers and the Lakers uh, in both uh. those games. So uh, the pennant race in the NBA will be kind of fun this year. So anyway, hey, so I I was um, you know as I kind of caught up on the Monday night game, you know I. I I just want to start off by saying all credit to the Ravens. I think Mike McDonald, the defensive coordinator of the Ravens, was absolutely perfectly dialed in to what San Francisco does well. And you noticed it, you know, as I kind of rewound the game and caught up a bit, you noticed one thing about what they wanted to do early. Actually, two things. Number one, be overly physical. Yes. They, they they really, it's like Patrick Queen said after the game, and, and kind of I think he was referring to this week's foe, the Miami Dolphins, too, that, you know, it's the old classic Mike Tyson, we're going to hit you in the mouth and blah, blah, blah. And I think he he came up with something because how many free rushes did Mike McDonald plot against Brock Purdy? He had a lot yeah. of them, and he forced Brock Purdy into making some throws that he didn't want to make. Uh, but but the other thing, Miles, that I thought he did really well is early in the game, they said, we are not going to let Christian McC- – and look, Christian McCaffrey had a nice game. Yeah. He, he was – you know, he's one of the few guys on the Niners who who had a nice game. But it wasn't an overwhelming game. And he had a lot of runs where he was just smothered right near the line of scrimmage. And that is what makes Baltimore so good right now. Physicality at the line of scrimmage. Justin Matabuike is muscling his way into defensive player of the year territory. Um, And their secondary, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, when I was talking to Kevin Stefanski about um, about Kyle Hamilton, mm. he said he's like Victor Wembignana. What how, pronounce his name correctly for me, will you? Wimby. That's Wimby. how I pronounce yeah, okay, it. Okay, good, good. <laughs> and he, because his arms are so long, and he right. And you know, look, he got lucky on the tipped interception, but thought he had a really great interception down at the line of scrimmage early when Brock Purdy, who all year has been layering his throws over Mm -hmm. coverage, he didn't layer this one and, in essence, 
Hamilton stepped right in the middle of it and intercepted it, and that began Brock Purdy's downhill climb on a four-interception night. Um, but, Miles, give me your impression of what really made the difference in this game Monday night. Well, I, I think Mike McDonald's game plan was terrific. And, you know, you can kind of tell some of those things, I think, when you see Brock Purdy double clutching. And you don't see Brock Purdy double clutch a lot, you know, where yeah. he's looking back there and he just kind of grips it and rips it, right? Because a lot of times things are schemed open. And that's part of why, you know, we praise Kyle uh, Shanahan as much as we do because he schemes things up very, very well. But I thought, early, especially early on in that game, there were points where Brock Purdy just did not have the open read that he usually has early right. on. And, you know, that's part of why everybody's been like, oh, well, is he really the MVP this and it's that and it's this and it's that. But I tend to think, you know, you still have to go out and execute the plays, right? And the way Brock Purdy has played throughout the course of this year, you have not really seen him have to do these things where he double clutches and then also he gets he starts making really, really bad decisions. It's just not really things that we've seen. So I, that's why I was really, really impressed with the way Mike McDonald schemed things up because I think if you don't have the, the scheme going for you as the Ravens did, then that thing probably turns out a lot differently because the 49ers are also bullies, right? They're, they're physical. They understand what it is yeah. that they want to do and they want to get after you. And they just weren't really able to do that because of the way the defense was in the right spots and ready for all the things that the 49ers offense will present to them. I think two things really hurt the Niners in this particular game. <clears throat> Number one, uh, I think Eric Armstead has had a very sneaky, strong year, uh, you know, playing on that defensive line and and stopping a lot in the interior of that defensive line. I thought he was really missed yeah. uh, Monday night. And I think the one other thing that really hurt them, and I mean, because I – I thought at halftime of this game, I really thought that Brock Purdy was going to be able to turn it around. Okay, mm -hmm. so let me take you into the play that, uh, in my opinion anyway, really ended up hurting, uh, really ended up hurting Purdy and, and, and ended up putting a, just really a nail in their chances to win this. And that was his fourth interception, his last yeah. interception, where, in my opinion, you know, when you are going to take a chance on a play like that, you know, where you essentially are going to throw the ball across your body back into the teeth of a very strong defense, that was the Patrick Queen interception. Mm -hmm. And, you know, essentially, that ruined the game for the 49ers. And again, I don't think you should make this game a referendum on Brock Purdy. And I'll tell you why. Because two, there was one, uh, you know, basically ball that was uh, either going to be his receivers or the DBs. Maybe his receivers should have fought for it a little bit more. And there was one that was a tip ball that these things happen. But 
first interception uh, by Kyle Hamilton, and then this interception by Patrick Queen, those were the quarterback's fault. Yes. You simply cannot do those. Yes. I, I totally agree with you. I mean, it, sometimes things happen, right? And, you know, you get tip balls and, you know, defenses often say tips and overthrows. Those are the ones that we need. But I totally agree. The first and the last interception, those are absolutely on Brock Purdy. And it's interesting because like, we don't necessarily see those kinds of really terrible decisions from him most of the time. So that's where I was kind of like, wow the defense is forcing him into making these poor decisions and making these bad reads. So, yeah, I, look, I don't think that Brock Purdy is all of a sudden terrible or anything like that. It's just, you know, he had a bad game at one of the worst possible times, A, because it's against a really good team. And, you know, if they won that game, then they would have a better inside track to securing that number one overall seed and perhaps getting a little bit more rest heading into the postseason. Um, but also because, look, it's on the national stage, right? And we're all, everybody was watching that game last night. So I think a lot of opinions certainly are going to be made off of Brock Purdy playing and the way he played um, last night against the Ravens. But look, the, the Ravens' defense will do that to most quarterbacks. Right. This is one of the best defenses in the league for reasons. So I, I think a lot of what that game says, uh, let me put it this way. I think that game says probably more about Baltimore and the way Baltimore could run away with the AFC if yeah. you continue to play at that level than it says about San Francisco and what San Francisco is and how they might navigate their way through the NFC, if that makes sense, Peter. I, I was probably uh... – at the beginning of the podcast, a little bit tougher on Christian McCaffrey than I should have been. I think I, what I meant to emphasize is how physical Baltimore was with McCaffrey early. I mean, throughout the game, really. Mm -hmm. And, and really McCaffrey to his credit did so many good things to make sure that, he was able to make something after getting hit, you know, getting yeah. yards after first contact. And, you know, he showed that obviously on the, on the drive that he owned, you know, the, 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 the best drive of the night for the, for the 49ers, you know, that resulted in the McCaffrey touchdown run. But I, I think overall, I, I'm not, I'm not particularly bothered for the 49ers about Purdy. I think they'll figure it out. I think he'll figure it out. My thing about Purdy is that you better have a fairly clean pocket for him because he's not one of these guys like Lamar Jackson, who when you make the pocket dirty or muddy, that he's just going to run for 30 yards. I mean, every time, obviously, but... That's just not his game. And so that's why I think it's important that Shanahan begin with a real deep dive into the protection elements in this game and making sure that they can protect Purdy, uh, you know, entering the last two weeks of the season. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And look, I mean, you mentioned Lamar Jackson and, you know, how things get muddied and he just takes off. I mean, that guy, the, the third down that he converted, it was just, I mean, it's unbelievable the way, and we've seen it time and time again, right? And he frustrated the Jaguars doing this a couple weeks ago. 
But the way that he's able to just navigate through things, weave his way, and then be faster than everybody so that he gets down the field and he gets first down. I mean, it's unbelievable the things that he's able to do. And, I mean, it feels like we have a new front runner for MVP every single week. And I don't know what's going to happen in these next two games because, look, the, the Dolphins, I think, are capable of beating the Ravens. So we'll see if that happens. I don't know. But in, right now, I mean, it's kind of hard to say anybody's playing better football than Lamar Jackson. You look at the totality of what he's done in these big games against these top contenders in both conferences. I mean, I, it's really, I, I think, just a testament to him and what he's been able to do. And now, I'm so glad, Peter, that we were able to see this guy in December and you know, going into January yeah. just playing. Because we haven't been able to see that over the last two years. And I think that it really does show us what we've been missing when it comes to late, you know, season football in Lamar Jackson and just how special this guy can be. You know, this is a classic case when you judge players right now. It's a classic case of you need to watch the games before you like if you looked at the box score last night Mm -hmm. uh or you know obviously monday night you say hey lamar jackson what did he run for 45 yards and threw for 250 or whatever and and you and you just say you know okay didn't didn't turn it over all that and but it's one of those things you have to watch the game Right. And that's why, in my opinion, right now, when you look at the way the NFL uh, is unfolding this year, you know, Lamar Jackson right now is 15th in passing yards, and he is, I think, uh, 7th in passer rating. And that really doesn't tell anywhere near the story. Right. Of the year that Lamar Jackson is having because you watch him play and he controls big games. Yes. Controlled, yes. That's a great way of putting it. He controlled the game against the team that we all thought was the best team in football. Or, yeah. I mean, I guess most of us outside yeah. of the state of Maryland going into that game thought yeah. that the 49ers were the best team. And so that is why to me, I think sometimes, who knows what happens in the next two weeks, but I know I've got an MVP vote, and you got to go one through five on the MVP. And this morning, if there are no more football games, Lamar Jackson would be number one on my list. Yeah, and I think it makes total sense. I mean, look, he is the quarterback of the team that, at least right now, has the inside track to being the number one seed in the AFC. So, that's one of those things where it's like, okay, I mean, and this is how it's been in the last few years, right? The what the team, um, the quarterback of the team that gets one of the top seeds is probably going to be MVP. But I think it's there's a reason for that, right? You know, it's not just random. It's because this is one of the most vital positions in all sports. And when you see why a team wins, often it is because of the quarterback. And you know, if the Ravens are going to be the number one overall seed um, in, in the at AFC, I, it makes sense that Lamar Jackson would then get to MVP status because it's, like you said, it's not just about the stats or what have you. He, If you watch the games, 
then you understand how well he plays and what he does in the most critical situations in games in order to help the Ravens win. So yeah. that's why it, it would make sense, in my opinion, if Lamar Jackson were to win MVP right now. It's what is so interesting, I think, about postseason awards is that if you look at it right now and look at this year and mm-hmm. the postseason awards, very often the MVP gives a pretty good clue to who's going to be, or vice versa, who's going to be the first-team All-Pro quarterback. Right. But in this particular year, you know, Lamar Jackson is not going to be anywhere near the most the most prolific quarterback, either in passing yards or touchdown passes. I mean, yeah. if you look at you know, passing yards, he's 900 behind Tua. If you uh, look passing touch, <laughs> excuse me, passing touchdowns, he's eleven behind Dak Prescott, uh, and and ten behind Brock Purdy, and so you you know, you look at the race for some of these things, and I don't know who's going to win, but one thing I always say about the MVP, at least in my mind, I don't think you should ever look at it like. I'm voting for the guy with the best stats. I think stats have to play a role in what you look at, but I think it has to be, you have to look at uh, who has done the best job for his team in lifting that team where they are. And especially since they have lost Mark Andrews. Mm -hmm. and, And I think when I look at the value of a player coming into and kind of coming down the stretch of a season. And you look at a team that lost Mark Andrews, who, as Lamar, and I was there that night when they lost him, and as Lamar Jackson said that night, you know, I'm peanut butter, he's jelly. This is the guy who we valued so, so, so much. And what has happened since then? They've beaten the Chargers by 10. They beat the Rams in overtime. They beat Jacksonville by 16. They beat the Niners by 14. And the Niners game was not even that close. So they've beaten their last three foes. There's a very good chance that all three of them are going to make the playoffs. And Lamar Jackson has done that without his security blanket. And that really bodes well, in my opinion, for what Baltimore can do in the postseason. Absolutely. And, you know, we'll see what they do against Miami this week. I mean, Miami played them very well last year and, you know, beat them last year with kind of one of those fourth quarter meltdowns that the Ravens have kind of had in certain situations over the last couple of years. So we'll see what they do this week. But yeah, I I think that there's no reason to believe that the Ravens are not the best team in the AFC right now, because look, what's their competition? I mean, yeah, the Dolphins beat the Cowboys, but one of those two teams had to change the, oh, they've not beaten a playoff team narrative, right? So the Dolphins ended up winning. Close game. You know, I thought the Dolphins played well, but they won. You know, you look at the Chiefs right now, and I know we're going to talk about them, but they're an absolute mess. The Jaguars, they're an absolute mess. Cleveland playing well, but you're still on Joe Flacco at quarterback. And who knows if, you know, the clock is going to strike midnight there, and then the rest of the wild card race is still really up for grabs. So we'll see what happens in the AFC in the postseason. But right now, I mean, it's the Ravens and everybody else, I think, in the AFC. 
That's how it looks to me, too. And, you know, Miles, one last thing before we go to break. I find sometimes narratives start during a season. And I like Cleveland's defense as much as anybody. And I'm a fan of what Jim Schwartz has done. Uh, Miles Garrett's stats be damned is just superhuman. So I really like Cleveland's defense, and they've shown that throughout the course of the year. However, however, the Baltimore defense is allowing 4.5 game, 4.5 points fewer per game. I need mm-hmm. to say that correct. The Baltimore defense has allowed 4.5 points fewer than anyone in foot or than. Jeez, I got to say this again. All right, I'm sorry. The Baltimore Ravens have allowed 4.5 points fewer than the Cleveland Browns this year through 15 weeks. And to me, I think that says a load about the Baltimore Ravens defense and how good it is because we all have exalted the Cleveland defense and rightfully so during the course of this year. So hats off to the Ravens, hats off to Mike McDonald. We're going to see if I can get my sane voice back for uh, our next segment of the podcast in which we go into the Raiders. We go into Kansas City. We go into why the Sunday night game is not Miami and Baltimore. And we'll do so much more after the break when we come back to the Peter King Podcast. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. So back in the podcast, Miles, my team of the week this week in week 16 uh, is the Las Vegas Raiders. A lot of times I feel like coaching changes are fairly cosmetic, but if you look at the two coaching changes for the Raiders, you know, when a couple of years ago they go to Rich Bisaccia and he's Newt Rockney down the stretch of the season. And now they go into a new stretch of their season with a guy who's never been a head coach. And you look at it, and you look at Antonio Pierce's impact on this team. And I'll just say this. Watching the Raiders go into Kansas City, 
And this is a great stat by Jim Nance during the latter portion of the game when I think it was 20 to 7 or whatever it was. Jim Nance said the last eight times Kansas City has played the Raiders, every one of those games, Kansas City scored at least 30 points. And here they were, even though they ended up scoring again, you know, here they were late, you know, midway through the second half, and they had seven. Might have been mm-hmm. in the fourth quarter. But so that brings me to what I consider the biggest problem that Kansas City has right now. And look, I wrote in my column last week, Kansas City, uh, that Patrick Mahomes, uh, when he was playing quarterback, had seven more dropped passes than any other quarterback when that quarterback was in the game uh, in the NFL. And they added to it, Travis Kelsey, I've never seen him drop a pass that he's alone. It's right in his hands. I just, it's not something that you see with the most reliable tight end in the game. But I think I understand the drop passes. I understand the mistakes. Here's my biggest problem right now with Kansas City. And that is, I think they have a a very hard time with protecting Patrick Mahomes against pressure rushes. And it used to be Mahomes was great against blitzes. But in order to be great against blitzes, you at least need a second to breathe and to process. If you don't have that time, if you have to make a decision at 1.6 seconds or whatever after the snap, and more and more, that's what we see in Mahomes, I think his offensive line is really letting him down. And I think that's one of the reasons why Antonio Pierce and Patrick Graham, his defensive coordinator, were so smart in this game saying, listen, we got to sell out to get to Mahomes. We know that he's pretty good against the blitz, but will he be pretty good against our blitz? And, And in this game, it was not just Max Crosby. You know, it was a lot of different guys on that defensive front. What did you see in that game, Miles? Uh, I I saw an extremely motivated Raiders team that clearly wants to play for Antonio Pierce. I don't know what Antonio Pierce did to captivate the locker room and capture the locker room, but he's done it, and he's done an outstanding job of it. And he's done as good of a job as you can as an interim coach, you know, there's only so much that you can really do once you are inserted into that role. And this is why I think Steve Wilkes did such a good job last year with the Panthers. You know, this is not a team that you constructed, right? It's not a team that you really had input in. And how are we going to set up our offensive line and our defensive line and our receiving core and all this stuff? It's okay. Well, I would want to do this now with what we have. And Antonio Pierce has made the absolute most of this opportunity. And you got to credit Patrick Graham, too, for getting that defense to play the way that it has. You know, and then they bring in Jack Jones, and he's had two pick sixes in the last two weeks. I mean, this is a team that I think, you know, if you're Mark Davis, you don't need to look elsewhere, right? You've got Champ Kelly as interim GM. You've got Antonio Pierce as interim head coach. Yeah, you got to go through the interview process in the offseason, and I think that that's good. You know, you open it up, and that does help more candidates. But you've got the best people for the job already doing it, I, I really think. And, you know, Antonio Pierce embodies, 
I think, what the Raiders should be, right? He understands all of these things, having grown up a Raiders fan in Compton and all this, and it's it's great. And, like, that's that, there's some fluff elements to that that kind of makes it like, oh, it's a nice story. But when you see the way that this team is playing for him, when they go out and kick the tar out of – the Chargers, you know, on that Thursday night and score 63 points. It's unbelievable to score that many points at any point in any game, regardless of if the, the coach is going to get fired or not on the other side. And then to go to Kansas City on a hats and T-shirts day for the Chiefs. Where if they win, they clinch the AFC West, and you don't allow them to do that. That, that to me, is an unbelievably good performance um, by the Raiders. But, I mean, Kansas City, to go to the other side of it, I see a broken offense. I mean, yeah. I don't know. From the operation on down, it looks broken. And, Peter, one of the things that I've kind of noticed watching the Chiefs in the last few weeks, and I, I'm not the best lip reader, but it seems like there have been multiple instances where Patrick Mahomes is looking at the sideline and he's basically begging the play call to come in. And yeah. that, to me, is, is symbolic of everything that's wrong. If you can't even get the play in, to the quarterback properly, well, then that's going to take every make everything take longer to line up properly for the quarterback to get the reads and, and pre-snap at the line of scrimmage. Everything is wrong right now with Kansas City's offense. It's not just the receivers. It's not just the offensive line. Mahomes starts pressing yesterday and starts trying to make plays that he should absolutely not make the play that – you know, it looked like initially it was an interception when he's going toward the right sideline there and it ends up being overturned. Why is that ball not being thrown away several seconds before that? Well, Mahomes is starting to think he's got to do this superhuman stuff because the entire operation of the offense is broken. So Andy Reid has got a lot of things to fix in the offseason going forward with that. There, I mean, but right now, yeah, the Chiefs still probably going to make the playoffs you know, they're still probably going to host a home game in the in the wild card round. But I see no reason to think that, you know, we keep talking about, oh, Patrick Mahomes is going to have to go on the road to the Super Are they going to win a playoff game? Not if they right. keep playing like this. Yeah, you know, Miles, I've got a – keep getting worse. Miles, I got a, I got a thought, and then we'll, we'll move on. Uh, but I've got a thought about your question about – Patrick Mahomes wanting to get the play in. And my theory is very simple. Andy Reid used to look at his play sheet and he used to look at the downs and distances. They're all, all these play sheets, these monstrous play sheets. They are categorized into basically, okay, second between 10 and seven, you know, second and between six and three or whatever. So they're all categorized. Andy Reid used to be able to look at his play sheet and look at four or five plays in every segment of his play sheet, no matter what the down and distance were. He used to be able to look at every one of these plays coming up and with 32 seconds left on the play clock, have an embarrassment of riches in his mind. Oh, we could run this. We could run that. We could run this. So he picks one. <laughs> Excuse me. And Mahomes has the play call by 20 seconds or or maybe 22 seconds, says it in the huddle. They're they're at the line in plenty of time. But I think now Andy Reid looks and he just doesn't have many plays that he likes because A, his quarterback doesn't have enough time. B, he can't trust the receivers 
to get separation. C, can't trust the receivers to catch the ball. It is a total, total, uh, I don't want to say disaster, because anytime you got Mahomes and Reed, I, I mean, and so you ask me right now, what do I think Kansas City will do? I think they will shorten the number of plays that Andy Reid legitimately, he might not have a shorter play sheet, but he'll shorten the number of plays that he feels confident in using, okay? And I think that when we look at exactly what is happening, I think you see something right now that you haven't seen, and that is that Kansas City is clearly, uh, you know, is clearly frustrated and can't find solutions mm-hmm. to what used to be a. If they had a problem, they'd have nine solutions. Now, right. in some cases, they don't have any. That's just my pet theory. Yeah, well, I, I think you're right about that. They they don't have the solutions because they don't have the personnel right now. And when you don't have receivers that you can trust, that's an off-season problem. You know, right. it's not that Kansas City just doesn't have a number one wide receiver. I don't know that they have a two. They barely have a three with Rashi Rice. I mean, Rice, hey, when he gets in front of the line of scrimmage and he's running routes sometimes, it just seems like everything just falls apart. He makes great plays in space, and you can see that he is going to come along. You know, there, you can see the yeah. traits that are there, but it's not there right now. And so he's not a number one, and then I don't know if he's a number two yet. So because of that, there's so much more pressure on Travis Kelsey, and teams know that they can key in on him, and he's not necessarily having the best year either. So it, it's all – because look, Travis Kelsey's a tight end. And he's been an unbelievable Hall of Fame caliber tight end for years and years and years. But he is getting to his mid thirties, so it's not right. like he's getting any younger. Yep. So I don't know. I, I, Peter, I think back to when you were in Germany and uh, Mahomes told you, you know, we're going to get this offense fixed. Uh, and you believe in Mahomes, of course. And, and I still do believe in Mahomes, but everything's just gotten worse. And so now it, it, it's just it's it's one of those weird things where man I I don't know where they go from here this season. Yeah, I agree with you, Miles. Um, let's move on to the Philadelphia Eagles. And it's funny when you look at statistics. Sometimes you basically say, "Well, okay, they're they're all right. They're 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 in decent shape," and. On Sunday, or I'm sorry, on Monday against the Giants, they had 465 yards of offense. And yet, you look at that, the 465 yards of offense, and why do you come out of that game really concerned about almost everything? But as I watched that game, and I watched probably two-thirds of that game uh, in between, I had a real good soccer game out back with uh, seven-year-old Freddie, uh, where we play one-on-one and it's a narrow yard and there are two goals and I can go about 45 minutes and then I say, all right, Freddie, uh, you win. Um, but anyway, so <laughs> I missed part of the game for that, but I came in and at the end of the game, I just kept thinking to myself, why does this team look like it's simply, you know, sort of, trying not to lose instead Mm -hmm. of trying to be really aggressive 
uh, and making plays like they have been in the first half of this year and certainly down the stretch last year. Um, I don't sense a confident offensive team right now in Philadelphia. What do you see? I, I don't either, which is interesting to me because, you know, as I'm watching that game, I keep thinking, man, they keep converting third down after third down after third down. And it turns out, I believe they were eight of 15 in the category and they were, they were able to make plays and they made enough plays to win. But, you know, it, it, the vibe is weird and it's not good around the Eagles right now. You know, yeah. you've got AJ Brown declining comment after the game, after the game where it's like, doesn't play badly. And I'm not, I don't know. I don't understand kind of what that disconnect is where you're watching and you're like, All right, you know, it's fine. It's a division rival. It's not like you think that you're just going to blow the Giants out of the water all the time. And I, I didn't necessarily think that. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly what they've got to do to get themselves right. But winning helps, you know, but at this point they still are going to need to make more plays um, and probably just get everybody more on the same page in order to really go into the uh, the postseason feeling good about themselves. But they, they yeah. it's just, like I said, it's just a weird vibe where when you win, it still kind of almost feels like a loss. Yeah, I, I think so too. I don't know. I'm sure that they're going to say, hey, a win's a win and, and, and all that. And I didn't even see what any of their people said after that game. But I mean... Really, you'd have the Giants knocking on the door to tie the game at the end. That, with their third quarterback, that's an indictment enough uh, against a team that they beat 900 to nothing last January in the playoffs. So, uh, big-time worry for the Eagles, who, by the way, have Arizona and the Giants the last two weeks. So, it's not out of the realm of possibility. I mean, just think. 49ers play the Rams in week 18 and that I don't know who's going to be playing who in that game and who's going to be playing all out. Who's not. I I don't know. We don't know, but the 49ers could lose that game. The Rams always play them tough. So Mm -hmm. I don't know what's going to happen, but man, if the Eagles win the next two, no matter how they win them and, and, and they end up as the top seed. I don't know that that, I think that'll be one of the weirdest top seeds in a while. Let's just say that. Um, Miles, I want to talk a little bit about the Lions. Uh, Just just a quick observation about the Lions as they win their first division title uh, in 30 years, since 1993. And just to watch what happened with their season on the line the last two weeks. Remember, they lost to the Bears uh, in early December, three weeks after having to score 15 points in the last four minutes of the game to beat the Bears. So Mm -hmm. they, they are coming off a stretch where they almost lost to the Chicago Bears twice, and they're facing... You know, now the Broncos, the Vikings, uh, they've got big games against playoff contenders coming up. And what really impresses me is how they've come out in both of those games and played very dynamically on offense. 
And right now, if you look at this team and you look at the number of major threats that they have on this team, I'm not just saying that Amon Ross St. Brown and and David Montgomery, Jameer Gibbs, but they have so many people right now who are threats to a defense. And I I think it's right up there with the 49ers. They don't have the star power in terms of their depth, but you look at guys like Khalif Raymond, and no one has, no one thinks Khalif Raymond is this great weapon, but every game Khalif Raymond makes some 26 yard play that you say, boy, glad that guy is on our team. And, you know, and Williams and Reynolds and Laporta. Yeah. This is a team that defenses are going to have to reckon with, and they've scored 72 points in these last two games that they really needed uh, to come on and to play well. But I think the Lions are going to be a tough out in these playoffs. It'll be an interesting test Saturday night in Dallas, but win or lose, uh, I think this is a dangerous team. It is a dangerous team, especially if they're taking care of the football properly. And this is, look, the thing with Jared Goff. If he's taking care of the football, he's not yeah. giving it away, then they're going to score points. Right? They're going to be able to put things up. And, and, you know, you just named all the weapons that they have. And they've done a really good job of utilizing those weapons. And it's also why Ben Johnson is probably the most mentioned name when it comes to head coach openings uh, um, going into this offseason. So yeah, they should be a tough out, but they've got to protect the football and they've got to be able to get the stops on defense. In the last couple of weeks, they've been able to do that. We'll see what they can do this week against Dallas. Should be an interesting matchup there. Um, but look, the, the fact that they now have already secured their spot in the postseason, winning the NFC North for the first time. And the last time they won that division, it was the NFC Central, right? So yeah. that's huge <laughs> for yeah. them. Yeah, you know, it is. It, it's, I think you got to give a lot of credit to Dan Campbell and, and Brad Holmes for the way that they constructed that team. And also, you know, people used to talk about, oh, you know, it takes years to rebuild and you do this and you do that. I think that what the Lions have done in these last three years is show, look, it doesn't always take that long to turn a team around, right? Yeah, that first year it was tough. They had some tough losses, but you started to see that they were buying in, that they were believing in what Campbell was preaching. Now they finished the season very, very well last year, ended up going nine and eight. And they don't make the postseason, but you could tell just how motivated they were when they played Green Bay in week 18. And they didn't have a shot at getting in, but they sure as hell kept the Packers from making the playoffs. And now this year they started to put it all together. And so we'll see how far they go, but I think that this is a masterclass in turning a team around, you know, from Brad Holmes and and also Dan Campbell. Brad Holmes, at least as of today, would be my executive of the year. I think he has made so many good moves, so many positive moves with this team. And just imagine adding Jameer Gibbs and Sam Laporta to an offense. Well, and look, he understood what was happening and what could happen with his team uh, with all the contracts and all the people they were going to have to pay. 
Okay, but if you think about it, Miles, look at it. They trade TJ Hawkinson to the Minnesota Vikings, and they draft Sam Laporta, and they have four years of a very manageable contract at tight end for a guy who might be a premier tight end. They had Mm -hmm. a premier tight end who was about to get paid. And I'm sure if you ask Brad Holmes, he's going to say, I think we could be, we could do 90% of Hawkinson or maybe even as good as Hawkinson and we won't have to pay him, you know, 15 million a year or whatever. But so that's one thing. Miles, two very quick things. I'm, I'm often very much against spending much time thinking about, well, if the playoffs started today. <laughs> now, there's only two weeks left. And how about these two delicious playoff matchups if the season ended today? Number six, Buffalo in the AFC at number three, Kansas City. Now, oh, <clears throat> Buffalo and Kansas City play about 16 times a year. It feels that way. Let's just face it. They're (laughs) always playing each other. But one more matchup, Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes. I have solved for Hans Schroeder and for Howard Katz and for Mike North and and Roger Goodell, everybody who makes the playoff schedule. That is the primetime Saturday night game on Wild Card Weekend. I, I mean, I can predict it right now. But the other game that I absolutely love is Sean McVay traveling to Ford Field to face Jared Goff. Yeah. I mean, how great would that be? And and yeah. and Miles, you know, you know, <clears throat> Jared Goff is one of the nicest guys in the NFL. Truly, truly. Yes. And but how much would Jared Goff love to face off against Matthew Stafford coming home and Sean McVay and knocking the Rams out of the playoffs. Jared Goff, you know, having covered him day-to-day for two and a half years, or three years, actually, three and a half years, that's a guy that, yeah, he's very nice. And, you know, I've had really great interactions with him, but, man, he's got an edge to him. And that edge, like – he wouldn't. He would try not to show it, but we, I think, would be able to see that edge if the Rams were to come and play Detroit in that wild card round. That that is absolutely a great matchup. Especially, I mean, look, Detroit still loves Matthew Stafford. I mean, I the, the amount of Lions fans that were rooting for the Rams to win that Super Bowl a couple years ago, and were just very, very happy for Matthew Stafford. That was really right. cool to see. So. Uh, That would be a great matchup if we got it. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Miles, three sentences about the Jacksonville Jaguars. I'm gigantically disappointed in this team. And so is Doug Peterson, the head coach. And he kind of called out his team uh, this week after yet another loss by the Jaguars. He said at some point, players have to take some some pride, in essence. I forget what his exact quote is, but that was it. And I wonder, when you look at the Jaguars right now, what do you think is missing? Uh, Consistency, um, good quarterback play. Yeah. Uh, You know, I mean, Trevor Lawrence is just so wildly inconsistent. I don't don't know if he's good. I think he's good. I know he's not great, but I don't know. And that's a a, a problem. You know, even Trevor Lawrence was kind of calling things out and saying, it it looks like we don't even practice, which like that also is very concerning, you know? So yeah, there's a lot wrong. There's a chance that the Jags don't even make playoffs. You know, we all think that they should win the AFC South. And they should be in the driver's seat for that. But the Colts could still win that division. If C.J. Stroud comes back, the Texans could still win that division. I mean, it's just – it's been really downhill real, real fast um, for the Jags. So, yeah, what, what's missing? I don't know, but a whole lot, Peter. So I want to <clears throat> take a minute for those who are kind of gearing up for Week 17 <clears throat> and – essentially asking this question. There's some really good games in week 17. And one of them is Miami and Baltimore. And yet Miami and Baltimore is on at one o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. Kansas City and Cincinnati is on at 425, both Eastern time, obviously, in the afternoon. And yet Minnesota and Green Bay is the the Sunday night game. So I think a lot of people have been wondering and saying, why exactly is this? And I'm going to attempt to explain why I believe this is it. But first I want to tell you something that, you know, the, the NFL is not, when they put the schedule together, they understand that they're going to have to flex some games late in the year. And I believe the NFL really considered moving a game into that time slot on Sunday night to the point that they asked right now, if they asked the Baltimore Ravens, they said, can you please check with your players to see how they would feel if the game was flexed to Sunday Sunday night? And now this is a rare thing. It's rare for a team to do this, but I believe one of the reasons that the NFL wanted to do this 
and wanted to be respectful of this team is that they had set up this schedule where they were not only asking the Ravens to play an away game on Christmas, which is a sacrifice a little bit for a team, but they were asking them to play 3,000 miles away from home on Christmas so that they wouldn't be home Christmas Eve, they wouldn't be home Christmas, and they would be wrung out dish rags when they arrived back in Baltimore at 7 o'clock on the morning of December 26th. Nobody is asking anybody to cry for the Baltimore Ravens. <laughs> Nobody is. And in my opinion, I thought it was worth it for the NFL. If you're going to play big games on a holiday, on a Monday, then why not take a potentially really big game and make it your prime time game? That's what they did with Baltimore at San Francisco. They were rewarded. Maybe the ratings won't show it because it, it was a bit of a rout. But anyway, the bottom line in this is, you know, the NFL would change a game if it felt it was a bad game, if they had to get out of a game. But I believe this says something about the way the NFL views its schedule. And that is, if the game is not a dog, and Minnesota Green Bay is not a dog, because clearly... <clears throat> there are playoff implications with this game. Maybe yeah. not as attractive as it was a couple of weeks ago, but <clears throat> there are playoff implications with this game. And I believe the NFL said, we're not going to change it <clears throat> out of some respect to inconveniencing Baltimore because Baltimore's players did not want to play a night game on New Year's Eve. They wanted to have the ability on New Year's Eve to be normal people. And so right. the way... The way I look at this is, the way I look at this is kind of kudos to the NFL for, for not doing it. And look, you know, will the ratings be as good for Minnesota Green Bay as they would for Miami Baltimore? Probably not. But any game that the Green Bay Packers are on, the, the, the ratings are not going to be horrible. Right. So that's a little bit of an explanation. What do you think? I think it makes sense. I mean, like you said, it is a sacrifice to play on Christmas and then have to turn around and then play on New Year's Eve, you know, and, and to have to play that night game that's especially on the East Coast, right, where you're not going to be – you're going to still be in a locker room probably showering and whatnot. Maybe you're in the family area when the ball drops. So, like, that's one thing um, if, if you're playing on, on New Year's Eve. But, yeah, I mean, look, the the Ravens, I think – if you have to do be in that situation, like you said, nobody's going to cry for them, especially as they won that game last night. But yeah, I can I can understand the NFL sticking with their their choice of the initial game there with uh, with Green Bay, Minnesota, and that still should be an interesting matchup. I mean, look, Jordan Love, we're still seeing whether or not he can do it on a national stage. And hell, Nick Mullins, I mean, he's had his struggles, but you know, Justin Jefferson's still out there. I'm interested in seeing the game. I think it'll be an interesting game uh, myself. I I can't fault the NFL at all for doing this. I think it's actually the right decision, and it's a, it's a human decision as well. All right. 
Three sentences now, Miles. Your offensive rookie of the year. Puka I'm Nikola, going CJ oh. Stroud, Jameer Gibbs. Who do you got and why? I would also nominate Laporta, uh, the tight end from okay. Detroit. You know, I think he's been great. But I would go with Puka Nakua because I think what he's done as a fifth-round pick to really be a leading receiver, not just for the Rams, but almost in the National Football League, is pretty unprecedented. And I think it says a lot about him and the Rams' ability to find him. We'll see what C.J. Stroud can do in these next couple weeks. But my money would be on Nakua because he's helping a team reach the playoffs. Yeah, this is going to be a tight race for me. Probably today I would pick Puka. He's four catches shy of 100. There's a good chance that he can end up with 105 catches and 1,500 yards. He's going to have an insane rookie year. One of the best rookie years that a receiver has ever had. But C.J. Stroud, if he plays normal C.J. Stroud football in the last two weeks of the season, is probably going to be top three in yards, even though he missed a couple of games. Uh, He has been a phenomenal quarterback in his rookie year. So I want to see how the last two weeks play out. But to me... Right now, probably Puka narrowly, but Stroud still got a chance to do it. Um, Miles, I want to get to TJ Watt now. I know we've droned on quite a bit, but I I wanted to talk to TJ Watt originally for my story about Cam Hayward uh, and Cam Hayward and his influence on the careers of so many players in Pittsburgh, including T.J. Watt. So let's hear from T.J. Watt right now about Cam Hayward and about his lot in life right now as a formidable pass rush threat in 2023 NFL circles. Happy to be joined this week by T.J. Watt of the Pittsburgh Steelers. And T.J., um, I've explained to you that I'm in the process of doing this kind of long story on Cam Hayward, both for television and uh, for my column. And I also wanted to do something on it for the podcast so they can hear in your words, your voice, what Cam Hayward has meant to you in your career. And I wonder if you might be able to take me into what you knew about Cam Hayward when you got drafted. He was already a veteran player obviously in Pittsburgh, sort of a cornerstone guy for the Steelers. When you first came in, what'd you learn about Cam? Man, it's crazy because uh, he came out, I think it was the same draft class as JJ, and I was so kind of caught up in JJ's career and following the Texans that you kind of lose sight of all the other playmakers in the NFL, and um, especially at the defensive tackle position in a 3-4 scheme, it doesn't get a lot of the limelight, and uh, I didn't – truly understand how dominant Cam Hayward was until I came here and stepped in the building. And uh, just to talk about his character and the guy that he is, um, I think he was probably the first guy to text me on draft night. Uh, So excited to have you part of uh, our team. Can't wait to get you here in Pittsburgh and get to work. And as a guy that didn't know anybody on the team, has never really left the state uh, to play football and to have a guy reach out to me and extend that warm welcome probably was such a little thing in his mind, but was absolutely huge for me. And um, 
from the moment I walked in this building, he, there was no hazing. There was no, um, I mean, there's always tough times. We always, uh, give each other a lot of crap and are very sarcastic with each other, but it's like, he's like my professional brother, if that makes sense. He's obviously, I have brothers that have played in the NFL, but it's different when you're around someone, um, in the building each and every day who you have that camaraderie with, uh, who you can joke around with. And you can also at the end of the day, um, focus on the work and the task at hand. And at the end of the day, um, that's what we want to do. We want to win a Super Bowl. We want to be the best football players we can be, but at the same time, we're not going to take everything so serious where we can't just hang out. What's he like on the field? What's he like during games? It's you get a different. I mean, it, it all depends. I mean, there's blackout cam where he gets crazy and he gets in this rage. And I mean, every training camp he gets in a fight. It's just I mean, we all know. I mean, sometimes two or three fights, and uh, you have to separate him. Like, dude, just relax, and he'll go crazy. And you're like, it's just training camp. You can we'll pull the, <laughs> pull the fight apart. We know you're the big dog. It's a big dog asserting his dominance, and uh, I've always respected him for that. But at the same time, I think as he's grown in this game and become more comfortable in his leadership role, he also has that side of him that you can see he's able to truly enjoy the moment and take it all in. And uh, I respect and appreciate him for that, for showing you that. Um, it's fine to, uh, to bust chops and laugh on the sideline of a game day um, when things are going well. Um, but at the same time, he also has that switch, like I was talking about earlier. Like when it's time to work, it's time to work. But when we're in the meeting meeting room in the middle of the season. Um, sometimes you can have fun. I mean, we're together so much. It doesn't always have to be about business. And uh, that's what I like about Cam. How do you think he's made you a better football player? He's shown me consistency. I mean, the guy, I mean, I don't, I haven't seen him miss many practices and uh, he works his absolute tail off and he wants it, man. He, he truly wants it. He, he shows he showcases people in this building why he why you should follow him, and it's all it's it's a lot of it is through example, but he also has the vocal side too, and he's not overusing his power. I think that's a that's a huge thing um, that I try to take from him too. Is you understand that your words carry a lot of weight, and that your actions carry a lot of weight as well, but you don't want to abuse that power, and he never does that, and that's why when he talks, people listen and people follow. Can you? Talk just a little bit about sort of the example he sets off the field. I did a bunch of interviews in Pittsburgh, including with an executive from the Pittsburgh public school system. And mm -hmm. she said she's worked for the public schools for 20 years. And in all of her time, she said, we have athletes do stuff all the time. No one has done as much uh, hands-on stuff with Pittsburgh public school students as an athlete than Cam Hayward. What have you seen in him in that aspect of his life? Yeah, he, I mean, he has his foundation, Hayward House. And he, the awesome thing about him is that whenever he has an event, he always opens it up to the locker room. Please, guys, come out, show support. And he lets you know from a very young age how important it is to get yourself out in the community and show these people that we truly care about them, that we're not just people on TV. And uh, he does that through his foundation. He always has us taking part. I think he just had his second year, I think it was, of his Cam Kindness Week, uh, where it's seven days he goes and does a different act of kindness um, to a different organization, whether it's Children's Hospital or through his, uh, I think it's Craig's Closet, where he gives away right. um, clothing. 
um, as well. And uh, I think there's just so many special things and special people. I remember, I think it was my rookie year or my second year, he invited me to some like gala or some event that he was hosting. And as I'm there, I didn't realize how impactful this guy was in the community. But he's going around and just shaking hands and everybody, he's just talking to everybody. He's like, this guy runs this uh, this uh, company and we do um, this partnership through through uh, Craig's Closet. This company does this. He's their part of Hayward House. And I'm like, holy cow, this guy is, he, he truly knows everybody in the city. There's mutual respect. Um, and it, it's something that I admire. And I wish that I had the capabilities and the abilities to have that business side like where you can just have all those types of relationships to help out make the biggest impact that he can possibly make. And uh, that's what makes him so special. And I mean, the city absolutely loves him and he deserves it. Imagine the role models that you've had in that aspect of this business, your brother, JJ Watt, who Mm -hmm. raised $8 jillion after the hurricane and the flooding in Houston and then uh, Craig Hayward, or I'm sorry, Cam Hayward, uh, with his dad sort of on his mind all the time, you know, Craig Ironhead Hayward. It's it's just, it's got to be good for you as a player and the other guys in your locker room to be able to see this. Yeah, exactly. And to understand that it's it's not easy for guys to do this. It really isn't. It's It cuts into your schedule. It's it it takes in the time with his own family, with his own kids. Like it, it's tough, but at the end of the day, he understands how important it is to give back. And that's from his upbringing from people that um, he's been around here in Pittsburgh that have showed him the way. And uh, I think it pays off. I think he'd do it all over again and do more as well. And I think that's continuing why you see him do the cams kindness weeks and continue to try to do more things in the community. And uh, it rubs off. It really does. Uh, I went to one event with him uh, my rookie year, and every year now I'm trying to go to more and more just because you see the impact that it has in the community. I'll tell you the most interesting thing, I think, after having spent a day or so with him, and that is that, so I think he is doing things that other athletes don't do, and I'm not trying to make this a contest, but there isn't anybody who says, you know, there's a lot of kids, a lot of boys in high school in Pittsburgh who probably can't afford a nice suit. So I'm going to partner with Hager and I'm going to go into 11 high schools in this city. And everyone, every boy in this high school who wants a suit, we are going to get them a suit. So if they have a job interview, they have a prom, they have something like that, they will have a suit. And he does it in honor of his father because his father in high school, and even when he was a big player at Pitt, a running back at Pitt, he only had one suit, you know, for like six or seven years. And then the other thing he does that I think is so cool is the grief counseling. He's been there. He lost his father his junior year in high school. So he has this group that basically ministers to these people and uh, we we met with a mom and her three boys. You know, their dad just died of a blood disease almost out of a clear blue sky. And just and Cam just hangs out with these kids. And it's just you always hear of, OK, somebody's working with a food bank. Somebody is working with the Red Cross, somebody which is fantastic. 
I'm not in any way demeaning that, but Cam Hayward has found these things that no one does. And he's gone out and he's done them. And that's what I think is kind of, it's kind of cool. He saw a need and he went and filled it. And he doesn't look for a pat on the back after it either. That's the thing is he's not going around flaunting this stuff. He's truly doing it out of the kindness of his heart. And that's what makes Cam Hayward so um, much bigger than life. I mean, talk about a guy that is so big and he looks intimidating, but when you really get to know him, he's the sweetest guy. He does have one of the biggest heads in NFL history. <laughs> we call him Head. His nickname is Head around here. Is it, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I I asked somebody at the Steelers when I was there a couple of weeks ago, and I said, how do you get a, you know, like he comes out and he has to wear a hat, like if he's doing an on-field interview after the game, like with oh. Amazon or whatever, he's got to put a hat on. How do you find a hat? They said, well, we we had to – we had to go find hats for get for off kids. a life size bobblehead or something. <laughs> uh, well, listen, that's great. I really appreciate it. I want to ask you two football questions now. So, I had on this podcast last week. I had Kirk Herbstreet on, and I said to him, uh, "Okay, so you were always a college guy, and then you know you came and you've done the NFL the last two years. What surprised you the most?" And basically, I'm paraphrasing him, and he said, the huge difference between how good defensive lines are and, in many cases, how not very good offensive lines are. Like, the defensive lines are way ahead of the offensive lines. So, you know, we talked about it a little bit. And what I am interested in, quite honestly, is how, you know, you've talked about it this year. Miles Garrett has talked about it this year. It's almost like the NFL is really letting offensive linemen get away with a lot, seemingly a lot more than they ever have. As a player, does it frustrate you sometimes? Oh, I mean, I think I don't even think it's just this year. I think it's been the past um, since I've been in the NFL is you just understand, I mean, as a football player, that there is holding on every play. There is a penalty on every single play. Um, it's just a matter of what can be called, how much stoppage you want in the game. Um, all those types of factors go into it. And uh, at the end of the day, I found out that complaining and moaning and groaning about these things doesn't solve any problems or help me in any way. So I think that's kind of the, the route that I've taken um, since I talked, whatever it was three or four weeks about it, ago about it. But do you, how are you able to put up with it? Are you, have you just sort of accepted it? Is it a constant source of frustration or how do you feel? I think at the end of the day, everybody's dealing with it. So I'm uh, just trying to handle it better than, um, the people in the league that are in the same position as me. Because at the end of the day, if they're not calling it um, for our team or whoever are, we're playing that week, they're not calling it for everybody else either. So at the end of the day, as long as we all have the same groundwork to play with and there's consistency in what's being called and what's not being called, then I have no problem with it because then it's a level playing field. And um, at the end of the day, um, we all have the same opportunities to make plays or to not make plays. What do you think of – Herb Street basically saying that defensive lines are superior and they're sort of way ahead of the offense. Do you, when you watch football, do you notice that? 
I don't know. I mean, if that was the case, you'd see 10 plus sacks a game, you'd think. But uh, I, I think uh, I don't want to take anything away from offensive linemen. I think they're, it, it, they're incredible athletes. It's incredibly hard to find 300 plus pounds, 6'5", and taller okay, men move the way that they do. And uh, I don't want to take anything away from those guys that do that for a living. I mean, I'm in no situation to say those guys aren't good at their job or they're lesser than us uh, because – in the NFL, everybody gets got, and you get humbled very quickly if uh, you think you're above or better than someone else. I want to ask you one thing about what it's been like for you to go to Pittsburgh and to play for the Steelers and to become sort of the latest in the line of really great defensive players there. I don't know if when you were growing up, and you watched football, whether you really watched or concentrated much on the Steelers. And, you know, TJ, you got to be honest, on draft day, you might have a feel for where you go, but basically it's a lottery. You know, you could go anywhere in the United States. So tell me just a little bit about what have been your impressions of Pittsburgh as, as a city and a place to play and the tradition. I love Pittsburgh. I really do. Um, there's a lot of places that I could have gone to that I wouldn't have been as happy. I know that for a fact. And um, I think first and foremost, it's the people. Uh, it's the community. Uh, people are just so appreciative um, and thankful that, I mean, that of the Steelers. And when I see people out and about, no one's really like bothering me for pictures or uh, autographs and stuff like that. I just truly want to be a part of the community that people accept and appreciate me for that. And uh, it's always just good luck, little things like that. I, I try to get on the community as much as possible and um, understand that it's a working class town. Um, people um, just want to see us be a part of the city and not just be those players on TV. And uh, that's what I love about Pittsburgh. I love the people. I love the tradition here. I'm just playing for Mr. Rooney, playing for Mike Tomlin. The system, um, it, it's a great fit for me as a 3-4 outside linebacker coming from Wisconsin. A lot of the system uh, type stuff was similar to what I did in college. Uh, so it helped my transition period a lot. And I think that's why you see with, with young guys um, like Nick Herbig, a guy that came from Wisconsin as well as an outside linebacker to here as an outside linebacker, you see the translation uh, or the transition, excuse me, happens a little quicker for those guys that have been in that system. And I think that uh, along with playing with all of the amazing teammates with and coaches that I've had here, along with mentors and James Harrison and great guys that, uh, I mean, you got Hall of Famers. Um, I know Franco Harris no longer is with us, but he used to come back all the time. Uh, James Harrison has been around. Rod Woodson's been around. Um, the list goes on of um, alums that are so proud of this place and that don't shy away from coming back and sharing their knowledge. And I've just tried to soak up as much information as possible, um, trying to learn, trying to be the best teammate I can possibly be. But at the end of the day, I'm going to work my ass off to be the best player I can possibly be for the city. And uh, I'm going to continue to do that until my playing days are over. I got to think that when you look at the history of this franchise and every day, if you so chose, you can walk by and see all the Super Bowl trophies right mm -hmm. in your building, right near where you are right now. And you can see all of 
the pictures of the greats of Joe Green and Jack Lambert and and Dwight White and L.C. Greenwood and James Harrison and all of these guys. And I got to think that for a defensive player to go to a place that made defense famous, that's what the, that's how the Steelers, you know, established their greatness. It, it just it has to be cool at the end of the day to know that you are the latest link in the chain. Yeah, but I mean, with high expectations, um, you have to work hard to attain to keep that tradition alive. And those guys got to that point because they worked hard, because they won when it mattered. They did all the things right. And I understand that there's a high responsibility on my end to continue that tradition. And um, obviously, I don't see myself in the same category as those guys because those guys, I mean, you mentioned those names there. Um, absolute legends in the game and I'm still writing my story and um, I just want to continue to put my head down to work and I feel like there's so much that has to be done um, that at this point in my career I'm just trying to continue to work and try to continue to bring as many people along with me as I can. TJ Watt listen thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your teammate Cam Hayward and your life in Pittsburgh I really really appreciate it. Thank you take care always a pleasure. My thanks to T.J. Watt for his time and his eloquence about Cam Hayward and other things. And as always, my thanks to Miles Simmons, my partner here on the Peter King Podcast. And uh, Miles, down the stretch, there are a lot of really, really good stories. We'll follow them all. Next week will be a little bit more of a normal pod. Uh, we will both be back in our abodes. But I'm thinking very seriously of getting on the train Sunday morning and going down to Baltimore to see that game. Be a little crazy on New Year's Eve, but I do think it's going to be worth it. And look, this is a testing game for the mm-hmm. Miami Dolphins. It's going to be a very, very physical game. And They do not have the reputation for being one of these punch-you-in-the-mouth teams. So it'll be a very, very interesting test for the Dolphins at Baltimore on Sunday. Oh, it certainly will. And I'm really looking forward to it. You hope Jalen Waddell can play dealing with an ankle. So we'll see if he is. But, look, as long as they got Tyree Kill out there and as long as Tua Tungvaluwa can deliver him the ball with accuracy, that Dolphins offense is still going to be hard to stop. But, look, as we saw on Monday night, the Baltimore defense, that's a tough, tough group to deal with. So it should be a fun game. Miles Simmons, thanks so much. And thanks to everyone for listening, watching, experiencing this episode of the Peter King Podcast. Everyone get ready. Have a very happy and safe and healthy new year. And we'll see you again in 2024. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gratadmissions.